as we continue our series on Baptist ecclesiology. I, for those who have just recently joined us, this is uh, just a reminder that this is not a full-blown sermon. This is more of a lecture. I just want to prepare you for that. Um, so again, just setting expectations correctly. But that said, as with anything, regardless if it's a lecture or a sermon, we need the Lord's strength and we need the Spirit's wisdom in knowing how to say things in a way which edifies the saints. So with that said, I would love to once again before, uh, go before the throne of grace and just commit this time to, uh, to the Lord as we jump into just really unpacking uh, his word and its principles. So let's pray. Dear Blessed Father, we again thank you for the fact that we can come before your front of grace as we delve into really the outflow and the outworking of your truth and the principles that are distilled from it. Help us this evening as we recognize it is after 5 p.m. and it's very easy for our minds to become tired and uh, distracted. So Father, we just pray that you may indeed help us to really have clear minds Help us to, to remain awake and certainly undistracted. Father, help us to come away really wrestling with your truth, recognizing that, that all of your word is useful for building us up in righteousness. So, Father, we just pray for this. I just pray for myself. Help me to be clear tonight. And, Father, help us indeed to be able to walk away just knowing a little bit more about your church. In your son's most blessed name. Amen. All right. Uh, thanks, Finney. All right. So from a recap from last week, um, for those who joined us, the re- a, re- a short, succinct recap is this. Baptist congregationalists, which are also called particular Baptists, that's what we are. We, are, we come from the tra- tradition which is called particular Baptists, so-called because of their belief in particular redemption. That is, Christ died uh, for all God's elect. Now, the, the particular Baptist or particular con- uh, Baptist, Baptistic congregationalists, as we called them the other week, held to an understanding of a local congregation of visible saints. Individual believers, having been saved by God, were to come together intentionally to form communities, these congregations, and they were to walk with one another as they walked with Christ. If anything else, one should walk away understanding that Christianity is not an individual sport. It's not not an individual activity. It's a collective activity. It's a team activity. It's a communal activity. As the independent minister, John Bunyan, um, some people argue whether John Bunyan was a Baptist or something else. I would argue he was not a Baptist. He was an independent, which is very similar to a congregationalist, um, but I won't go too much in depth rather than just to say that John Bunyan likely wasn't a Baptist. But John Bunyan put it, I dare have communion, church communion, with those that are visible saints by calling, with those that, by the word of the gospel, have been brought over to faith and holiness. So that's a good summary of really the idea of visible saints. This is what individuals who believe in Christ, they want to do. They want to have communion with others who are also Christian and who recognize that they've been brought over to faith and holiness, as John Bunyan puts it there. 
So holding to their congregation's roots, particular Baptists held that these local congregations, these churches, were to be autonomous and independent in nature. Yet this did not preclude association and collaboration between churches, even churches of slightly different theological persuasion, i.e. on the subject of Peter baptism. Um, Baptists, particular Baptists, were still happy to collaborate and associate with congregationalist churches, which, again, differed with Baptists on the idea of infant baptism, but also with Presbyterians. On the idea of Anglicans and Baptist Baptist association with Anglicans at this period in time, uh, it's a little bit more uh, fuzzy. Uh, Some particular Baptists did not see the Anglicans as being a a really um, a true church, so so to speak, but I won't go into that tonight or or perhaps even through the study. But therefore, the particular Baptists, they rejected the idea of a national church. As we covered last week, the concept of this one geographical invisible church to which all congregations are affiliated and held. So again, if you want to use that example that we touched upon last week, you got the Anglican Church of Australia, not the Anglican Churches of Australia, the Anglican Church of Australia, or the Presbyterian Church of Australia, not churches. But when you look at Baptist or congregational churches, Right? You have the Baptist Union or the Association of Baptist Churches and likewise the Fellowship of Congregational Churches. That already reveals the difference in how the Anglicans and Presbyterians understand their church as one organism, one giant entity for which all the local congregations kind of affiliate and part of and form that one whole body as opposed to Baptist and Congregational Churches which are individual smaller churches and, and autonomous in nature. They held instead that whilst there was a true universal church that had Christ as its head, that these were visibly manifested through local churches dispersed throughout the world. While agreeing on many of these points with the Congregationalists to which they came from, such as Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, Philip Nye, they're three well-known Congregationalists, some of them whom you may know, uh, they disagreed as to the exact composition of and involvement of infants within the local church and held to the understanding of visible saints to its logical conclusion. Uh, if we remember from the conclusions of last week, we recognize that even for congregationalists held to the concept of visible saints, their understanding of infants within the church community meant that they ended up with problems later on when those infants grew, grew up and weren't necessarily, weren't saved, weren't people who professed. And so how did the church retain this idea of only being a regenerate church body, only having actual be- professing believers as members? Uh, but again, particular Baptists took this understanding of visible saints to its logical conclusion, that baptism and membership in a local church is to be reserved only for those who profess faith. So therefore, as we have covered so far, the particular Baptists followed Congregationalists in their understanding of the nature of the church and that it was only to include those who were believers based on their profession and mirrored outward behavior. So those who said, I'm a believer, and their lives testified to their belief, they were to be those who composed the actual local church. It was understood that as an individual became a believer, they would join a local church, as visibly evidenced in the early chapters of Acts, such as what we read out earlier. And this was due to the reality that as one was saved, they entered into a spiritual union with Christ. As I became a believer, as I 
believe in the Lord, I have now entered a spiritual union with Christ. I am now am part and belong to Christ. And as that happens, then I'm also to have union within Christ's body. This was to be, as it says, said, this, is, uh, this was to be visibly paralleled by the communion that one was to have within Christ's body. One instinctively led to the other. Being in relationship with God meant being in a relationship with his people. After all, the presumption of the one another's and the one another's are certainly, uh, uh, you've heard me exhort that a number of times over the past uh, couple of years, the one another's are, uh, exhortations that we're to, to do to and with one another. But, of course, that presumes that, uh, that obviously, that Christians are in communities in which these one another's can take place. Otherwise, how can you do the one another if you're not with people you can do the one another's with? And um, likewise, the exhortation by Christ that the world will know that we are his disciples through our love for one another. This presupposes that Christians would be in relationships in which to evidence this sanctifying, mutualistic love. Uh, after all, this is, how you will, this is how the world will know you are my disciples through your love for one another. Well, if we're not living with one and doing life with one another, how will the world know that we love one another? So that presupposes that we will be doing life together so that we can show that and demonstrate that we love one another and that through that, the world will see what? That we are the disciples of Christ. Ian, Ian Murray summarizes this notion well when he states that commitment to Christ demands commitment to a local church because we cannot separate Christ from the church. I think that's a fairly good summary of what it means once we become a Christian, once we become and belong to Christ, we now belong to the body of Christ. This was therefore the underlying premise which was understood by the Baptists. Individuals saved by Christ were now called to gather together for particular purposes that included divine worship and mutual edification. The 17th century particular Baptist uh, pastor, Benjamin Keach, uh, one of the most uh, Benjamin Keach is one of the most well-known pastors of that period. Uh, if uh, again, often when we look at the Puritans and particularly the Baptists were Puritans, uh, absolutely, uh, they just of course disagreed on certain concepts such as what we're covering. But Benjamin Keach was the well-known Baptist minister and pastor of this time period of the 17th century, and often he's not someone who's as well-known as the likes of John Owen or Thomas Goodwin. Uh, and so forth, but uh, if you're ever interested in early 17th century Baptist uh, history and theology, Benjamin Keach is certainly one person to know. But he puts an understanding of the church like this: a Church of Christ, according to uh, a Church of Christ according to gospel institution, is a congregation of godly Christians who, being first baptized upon the profession of faith as a state assembly, do by mutual agreement. And, cons uh, and consent, give themselves up to the Lord and to one another according to the will of God and do ordinarily meet together in one place for the public service and worship of God, among whom the word of God and sacraments are duly administered according to Christ's institu institution. That is, believers came together and intentionally consented, often through a church covenant, 
or agreement outlining how they would walk together to be act in an active and constant communion with one another as Keach outlines in that statement. This communion was to, uh, this mutualistic communion in which we have with one another was be understood as spiritually binding whereby the congregants, brothers and sisters, would keep each other accountable in accordance with the will and word of God, being willing to admonish and exhort one and each other provided the situations arose. Individuals would consent to be a formal member of the church in order to be extended these privileges. As church membership presented a formal binding of this process, and indeed church discipline is predicated on a body of believers which aren't loosely defined, but as a community in which it's clearly understood who are the active participants within the church, a point we will return into in a future week. But again, how can you carry out church discipline if you don't know who the members of the church are? Uh, Baptist historian James Renahan notes that what formed by covenant or simply a mutual agreement, the act of becoming a church was a serious matter. Membership was a high privilege with great responsibilities. Careful inquiry was made into the conversion experience of each applicant, and all were subject to scrutiny and corrective discipline if they fell into sin. Indeed, when, when believers met together with the intentionality of what we note above, the church was gathered. So this idea that we are intentionally gathering together to walk alongside with one another. When that happened, the church was gathered. It had gathered in a willful obedience to Christ who, as its head, had called for all of these assemblies to physically occur. Indeed, Christ had promised to be spiritually present amongst his people during such gatherings. There's a verse there, Matthew 18, 20, which is when two and three are gathered, I am there. And so believers physically gathered with real spiritual anticipation. When we gather, it's not just we're gathering together without Christ in a picture. No, when we gather, we know and recognize that Christ is in our midst. So that, there's that real anticipation. Gathering was an instinctive norm for believers. And as they heard the word of God and were saved, it seemed only natural that they were added to the community from which they had heard the proclamation. Such is particularly seen through the book of Acts, where as a constituted pattern, the word of God was preached, and then what do we see? As a result, people were physically added to the number, like to the church. We saw that in uh, Acts 2, which we just read out earlier. The creation and expansion of the redeemed community in the New Testament, then, is one that is instigated by the word of God. However, the word, far from being relegated as a single-use affair, that's not that's saying that we just don't use the word of God once during our conversion period, and that's it. We, we hear the gospel, and that's it. We become a Christian, there's, then there's no more space left for the word of God. But rather than being relegated as a single-use affair, it, the word of God was recognized as playing a continued, preeminent role within local gatherings. Local churches were, after all, a reflection of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. They were, built, be, they were to be built upon the teaching of the apostles, recognizing their roles as privileged custodians of the conveyed words of Christ. Believers committed themselves to the word of God, understanding its importance in informing, shaping, and ordering their lives. 
but it just wasn't it wasn't just the hearing and understanding of scripture that they were called to do, but its application. Thus, in the description of one of the first churches in Acts 2, verse 42, we see what? That they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They met and heard the teaching, and then what? Performed its outworking. Likewise, this is seen through the apostles' continuous exhortations to their listeners to grow in maturity. Right? Whenever you look at one of the Pauline epistles or anything, uh, any of the exhortations of James, John, etc., what are they continuously exhorting to the reader? To grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in maturity. How do they do that? By the word. For its hearing and its application. Paul in uh, in particular constantly prayed for his readers to grow in their understanding and by this their love. Growing in love and theological understanding was not understood as a dichotomy. As in you can grow in knowledge or you could grow in love. There's two different things. These things are meant to be together. Growing in knowledge and growing in love should be hand in hand. but rather a conjunction, both occurred together. True love could not happen without understanding, and true understanding was impossible within a vacuum of love. Indeed, the commitment to God's word in this way is the most noticeable mark of the local church, for a local church can only be a reflection of the universal church, that is, of course, universal church is all those uh, people who are saints who believe, The local church can only be a reflection of the universal church by its willingness to be submitted to the centrality of the ministry of the word. That is, as the Apostle James puts it, by becoming hearers and doers of the word. And you have there in James chapter 1 verse 22, which as many of us are familiar with, is not to be merely hearers, but doers also. In this way... The local gathering provided not only the means to hear the word, so again, it's when we come here to the assembly, right? The local gathering isn't the only place, to, uh, isn't only uh, provided the means to hear the word, but also the primary forum, the primary forum to put it into practice. Where's the primary way that we, and where do we put the word of God in practice? There's a primary way it's here. That was the point. Believers physically met in order to have the word applied to themselves and to apply the words to the word to others. It was through this lived community that there was ample opportunity for application. We're living life together. We're doing things together. And as we walk with one another, we can then perform God's word to one another, apply God's word to one another. It's a bit hard to apply God's word to one another if we're not with God's people, just to emphasize that point. The numerous one another passages that are littered throughout the New Testament bear witness to this point. These specific imperatives that act as a basis for true Christian uh, community exhort believers in how to mutually relate to one another. Believers were, to name a few of the commands, called to love one another, build up one another, teach one another, comfort one another. Indeed, believers, by the very virtue of being believers, were called to a mutual obligation to build others up towards conformity to Christ. So if you're a believer, 
Again, Romans 12, you belong to one another. And as such, we accord and we have a duty to build one another up in Christ. To convey this understanding of the interconnectivity of all believers within a local community, Paul often uses the language of the body of the church. It's something that I'm sure most of us are familiar with. This being most noticeable within 1 Corinthians 12, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 12, verses 12 to 31, whereby the apostle informs the church at Corinth not to look at themselves as individuals belonging to, the ch- to a church, but as individuals that comprise the church. Paul uses the language of a body um, to express that each and every believer had a role to play within the church and that God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. Each was called to work, live, and function together in the commands that uh, they were collectively called to. Now, commenting on this passage, New Testament scholar uh, Simon Kirstenmaker, he made the following observation, and it's a very good one. He goes, the human body is a highly uh, diversified organism. Each member has its own distinct function, uh, but also contributes to the working of the entire body. So it is, is within the body of Christ in which each, every member has received some spiritual gift. In this body, the employment of each gift is designed to serve not the individual member, but the entire church. And it was through the act of functioning together that believers were able to build each other up in a way that God intended for his redeemed people. This is God's plan for us to gather like this and to walk with one another, to build one another up in Christ's likeness. Indeed, this point is made by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, where that by speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Subsequently, the, the gathering, the congregation, the assembly is to act as a forum of spiritual nourishment. Because when we go and come alongside one another, we do these things to one another, we apply God's word to one another, this assembly becomes a place where we are spiritually nourished. And uh, and it's a formulation for all believers who are called to collectively partake in this means of grace. By this, the local church serves in a motherly role nurturing believers through both instruction and application to spiritual maturity. Now, this is a particular analogy that you can find from the early church right through the Reformation into the Puritan period. It's up even to the start of the 20th century. It's something that you don't hear as much these days, the church in its acting in its role or capacity as a mother. Um, this term of the church serving as a mother through generally avoided by Protestants today due to historic misuse by Roman Catholicism is a helpful descriptor of the role that the church plays for an individual believer. We are saved to the universal church and by consequence a local church which acts as its physical manifestation. And it is, it is the church which as Calvin describes it uh, conceived us in, a, in her womb, gave birth to us, nourishes us at her breast, and keeps us under her care and guidance. 
It was necessary that Christians understood that they were saved as this local institution, which would provide the care and the instruction that all spiritual children needed. Again, when we're, when we're babes in the flesh, when we, when we are first converted, we come to a local church. And I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but when I first came to a church, I knew absolutely nothing. And it was within the context of the church in which I was spiritually nourished and built up in my Christian walk. And this is what Calvin's getting at. This is the place in which this spiritual formulation actually occurs. Separation from God, uh, God, separation from God's appointed means to which a believer has been saved would be disastrous. Uh, as to do so would be to ultimately spurn God himself. Because again, God's given us the institution of the local assembly to build us up to become more like Christ. And so if we therefore go, we don't need the local church, we don't need that at all, I'm fine by myself, we're actually not only, we're not only spurning the local church, we're spurning the one who gave us the church, the assembly of the church for our spiritual development. We're spurning God himself. This is why Cyprian, the third century bishop of Carthage, meant when he pointedly stated, he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. The Christian gathering was to be exactly that, a gathering to which the believers assembled to perform the ministry of the word. True submission of the word entailed that one would inevitably be equally serious about the application. If I say I'm, I'm serious about God's word, am I really serious if I'm not eagerly looking to see how I can apply God's word to God's people? That begs the question. The first, any believer who did not recognize the importance of the physical communion, uh, that is in the Greek koinonia, which uh, will become an increasingly important word in weeks to come, to which they had been called, would do so at their real spiritual detriment. Likewise, any self-professed church that did not truly subordinate itself to God's word forfeited such a role. As the Dutch-American theologian Gerhardus Voss mentions, a church that would abandon this ministry, at least in its fundamental elements, would cease to be a mother of believers. Again, if the, if the church isn't subordinate in, in teaching the word of God, then it's not really a church. It's forfeited that role. The local church was called to gather around the word of God, and it is through the local church and by his word that God primarily works out his plan and purpose for the people that he has redeemed. Now, the word then is to be the foundation of all true Christian gatherings. It is the very soul of the church. It not only facilitates the establishment of God's people on earth, because how are we saved? By hearing the gospel, which is God's word, the good news of Christ, which is within the pages of scripture. Um, it not only facilitates the establishment of God's people on earth through the instituted means of the proclamation of good news of Christ, but additionally provides the order and structure of how God's people are to live once this reality is applied. Now, Gehaz Voss, he rightly notes that the ministry of the word is the means ordained by God to maintain the uh, church and continue it. It's the word of God going forth, and as people come in and they're built up in, in, in the word of God, that continues the church, the growth of the church and the outworking of the church. I mean, the, the fact that we are here today in 2023 
doesn't mean that we came from a vacuum, that there was no church and then popped, here we are. There's two centuries of churches which preceded us. And how did we get here? Because the word of God went through and went out and continued the propagation of believers. It acts as a foundation of how believers are brought into the kingdom and further equips believers to actually live as its citizens. By it, the church was to act in concert with the Holy Spirit, providing the means, that is, i.e., the proclamation of the word, through which salvation was applied, Romans 10:14, and by which sanctification occurred. Equipped with the word as its weapon, the, the, world is, the church is called to bear witness to it going forth and proclaiming both the good news of Christ and the whole counsel of God so that God's kingdom would be further built and developed. This change to uh, this cha- charge to the church, perhaps best described in the Great Commission, which notably exists in some version in all four Gospels. That's, I mean, when we think, okay, what's the mandate of the church? The Great Commission comes to mind, particularly Matthew 28. But again, the Great Commission is, is such that it's so imperative that you find uh, uh, you find it in all four in, in different slightly different var- uh, variations but in all four gospel accounts Matthew uh, 28 uh, again is more, more than likely the most well-known uh, version of the Great Commission where it goes all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Whilst the Great Commission is usually taken as talking chiefly about evangelism, there is a much more a profound truth, uh, which is what is actually being commissioned here. Absolutely, evangelism is certainly one of them, but it's not the totality of what's actually being commissioned as here and elsewhere, Christ has appointed his church to be his tool for the expansion of his spiritual kingdom. That is to say that the role of the church to go forth to the world and preach the, uh, the word to disciple those who, as a result, becomes his followers and to ensure that they are fully instructed in his ways. Or if we were to restate that slightly differently and decide the theologian, or the Baptist theologian, Augustus Strong, the sole object of the local church is to glorify God in the complete establishment of his kingdom, both in the hearts of believers and in the world. Now, to achieve this end, a local gathering must seek to understand and perform its threefold duties. The church has threefold duties, three uh, duties, uh, and that is to God, to the church, and to the world. That is, through the worship of God, the building up or discipling of each other, and the evangelization of the world. Fortunately for each of these, God has, through his word, provided the structure and the format of the church so that it can achieve its designated charge. So God hasn't just given us this commission, given us a charge and went, go ahead, best of luck. But he's given us the structure and the mechanisms through his word and how we can accomplish all three of our duties here. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink makes this observation when he states that the church as a gathering of believers has 
with a view to the calling which it must fulfill on earth, received from Christ a particular institution, a peculiar arrangement of gifts and powers, offices and services, through which it can respond to its vocation. That is, that is to say that the church has been given the means to achieve this commission. It has been granted an assortment of individuals that together facilitate it and a structure which includes both officers and, acti- and activities to ensure its accomplishment. Now, the first one to God. Out of the threefold duties, we'll start with the most important, to God. As Strong suggested above, the preeminent purpose of the gathering of God's people must be to glorify God. I mean, all of us undoubtedly know the first answer to the Westminster Catechism. It's longer or shorter, it doesn't really matter. What is the chief purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So again, the preeminent purpose of the gathering of God's people must be to glorify God. This is necessarily owed to God by virtue of his station, as he must rightly be the object of glorification and worship by the creature. God is God. And each of his displayed attributes, such as his wisdom, power, and righteousness, are worthy of praise and adoration. Indeed, this was a designated purpose of humanity from the very onset of creation. And it will again be the case in new creation as God's people assemble to give God eternal praise. However, far from being a distant or future reality, as in, yes, that's what we will be doing one day, we will be giving eternal praise to God, far from being that future reality, the church is called to gather together for this purpose now, presenting and reflecting the divine eschatological reality of the heavenly assembly, which awaits us. The spiritual reality that exists in and through Christ is called to be physically embodied in real collective worship. When we come and we sing together, what are we doing? We're singing praise to God. And one day that will be such a great and a great eschatological reality where there will be all of God's people assembled and gathered together being able to give eternal praise. And we get a small foretaste of that when we sing together collectively in public worship. This worship occurs in a way that is both described and directed by God. For rather than being dependent on the fallibility of the creature to compose how the creator ought to be worshipped, God provides a clear structure for his people within his word. Indeed, God must be engaged on his own terms. I cannot emphasize this enough. God must be, uh, God must be engaged on his own terms. It's a sheer audacity. To think that fallen, yeah, regenerated, which is true, but fallen creatures ought to prescribe how God ought to be worshipped. Hey, God, I, I should tell you how you should be worshipped. No, it's God himself who prescribes and tells us how he is to be worshipped. Now, it is this uniquely Protestant understanding that has traditionally been called the regulative principle, uh, so-called due to the belief that God regulates his own worship, and that he, as Calvin states, disproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. Perhaps the most definitive statement on this point is that from chapter 22 of the 1677-1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which itself is appropriated 
to no one's surprise, of the Westminster uh, Confession, um, where it, in, it states, The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. This is because it's evidently clear in Scripture that God cares how he is to be worshipped and followed. Cain is reprimanded for his worship in contrast to Abel right there in the beginning in Genesis 4. The offering, of course, of unauthorized or strange fire uh, by Nadab and Abihu, uh, the sons of Aaron, and met with, of, of course, their demise after they offered that in accordance to their own thinking. And God rejects King Saul's non-prescribed worship in 1 Samuel, whereby he is, uh, is King Saul is rebuked by Samuel, who states, to obey is better than sacrifice. That is to say, worship should be based upon what God has determined as opposed to whatever we deem as suitable. As John Owen puts it, by corrupt imagination. Again, we, yes, we are regenerated. We still recognize that we are still fallen creatures. So when we start trying to go, okay, this is how we're going to worship God, regardless of what Scripture says, we start conceptualizing how God ought to be worshipped from the minds of the creature as opposed to his revealed will. By doing so, when we do this, uh, to worship God in accordance with our own determination and corrupt thoughts, it's effectively to strip God of his dominion. As John Calvin indicates, how important do we think it that the Lord is deprived of his kingdom, which he so sternly claims for himself, but it is taken away whenever he is worshipped by laws of human devising, inasmuch as he wills to be accounted the sole lawgiver of his own worship. Instead, a particular Baptist continue with a Puritan and Reformed understanding that God himself sets the parameters of his own worship. This was against the Anglican and, and Lutheran approach that all worship, which was not forbidden or strictly forbidden by, by God, was acceptable. Uh, this, this principle is often called the normative principle as opposed to the regulative principle of worship. Particular Baptists embody the approach of Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, whereby after God through Moses provides the parameters of how he is to be worshipped to the Israelites, he concludes in reminding them to be careful to do everything I command you. Do not add anything to it or take anything away from it. Subsequently, gathered believers came to come together to worship God in accordance with his word, and it is the preeminence of the word in worship which demonstrates the gathering's uh, obedience to God. Yet what does God's word mean? actually tell us to do? What does God's word actually accord? It is here we must distinguish um, using a reformed uh, categorization or distinction between the elements or what we actually, what we do and the circumstances, which is how we do it. So again, elements and circumstances. Elements is what we do, circumstances, how we do it. 
um, of worship. The, the, ref, the former uh, regards fixed actions that are explicitly prescribed in Scripture, which Lincoln Duncan, who's the uh, Chancellor and President of Reformed Theological Seminary in the United States, he summarizes, I believe it's a chord, and I love this, uh, this understanding, read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and see the Bible. The latter regards the circumstances, uh, the circumstances of how we do worship, such as the time, the length, the place, and whether one should use uh, PowerPoint. None of these truly add anything to worship. So when we're talking about not the elements of worship, what we do, but we talk about the circumstances of how we do it, none of these truly add or, or take anything away from worship. Um, Thus, when it comes to the circumstances of worship, as whether we should use a PowerPoint, for example, uh, there is liberty on this. But such, whatever we do, regardless if there's a point of liberty, whatever we do ought to be done with wisdom and prudence. We just don't do it simply based because we think it's good, it's cool, or it's good. However, regarding the principles or elements of worship into which all Christians are called to do when they gather, an appropriate passage is to examine Acts chapter 2, verse 41 to 42, which is what we read out earlier. So those who accepted this, his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, what is a number of relevant passages that touch upon the prescribed elements of worship that should occur amidst the gatherings, what we should do when we gather together, I believe Acts 2 here provides a helpful foundational text that shows how gatherings were composed, you know, what gatherings actually did when Christians gathered together. They gathered, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So we look at the first part, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, Christians accord to read the word when they assemble together. The word is that which provides structure, shape, and definition to the body. When believers meet around the word, they meet with God. As it is his voice for everything that believers need to live, the lives in which they accord. Paul reminds Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped by every good work. The entirety of the word is, uh, was to be proclaimed, exhorted, and exegeted for the well-being and maturity of the assembly. This is why Paul exhorts Timothy elsewhere to give your attention to the public reading, exhortation, and teaching. However, the word was not only meant to be heard, but as we covered earlier, it's also meant to be applied. Now further, God's word is to be understood and applied by song. Paul reminds the congregation of Colossae, let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom and singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Now there's two passages which Paul uh, touches on this, Colossians uh, 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19. But singing God's praises was understood as being a natural outflow of the exposition and application of the word. It is a way in which the word was mutually understood and appreciated and applied to the congregation with believers not only singing 
to the Lord. You'll notice in both of those passages, there's, there's um, what we call a vertical aspect there where we're singing as unto the Lord, but there's also a horizontal aspect where we are singing to one another, to each other. By this, God was not only collectively praised by the congregation, but God's promises were corporately applied through collective admonishment. When we sing, we are seeing God's promises to one another. Uh, Now, we move from they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the next part, to the fellowship. Now, by by the singular act of gathering together, Christians were in fact performing an act of worship to God. When we gather, our gathering itself is an act of worship to God. Gathering is a demonstration of obedience to him. After all, he tells us to gather with brothers and sisters. It's also a demonstration of dependency, particularly during times where such meetings are physically difficult. When we go, oh, it's too hard to meet, by us still continuing to meet, it shows that we are being obedient to God. When believers meet together in worship of God, it was done in recognition of the relationship that they now had with God and with one another in God. All right, we move to the next bit, to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread here is not referring to uh, uh, hospitable fellowship. Through that much did actually occur in the gatherings of the church. Rather, because if if it was just meant to the breaking of bread, that would be just a double, um, well, it would make the, the precedent verse superfluous in the fact that it goes to the fellowship and to also fellowship. So fellowship twice. No, it's to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. So the breaking of bread isn't not referring to, uh, to that, or for that much did occur in the gatherings of the church, but rather when by the breaking of bread is speaking to the act of physical communion that believers partook in, mirroring the real spiritual communion in which they enjoyed. Now this act also called the Lord's Supper, and we'll get into this in the future, uh, I think uh, not next week, but the week after. Um, this act also called the Lord's uh, Supper along baptism was a sacrament. Now, I put a footnote there as to what a sacrament actually means, and a particular Baptist used the terms um, ordinance and sacrament interchangeably, at least uh, quite a number, including Benjamin Keach did. Um, but both, uh, both baptism and the Lord's Supper are particular activities that were commanded by Christ to do. Both were signs of the word, making visibly prominent what had spiritually occurred. When we, if we understand about baptism, right, we'll cut, touch on it in future weeks, but again, that's manifesting, making physically apparent what has occurred within the life of that believer who's getting baptized, right? The, it's an outward physical manifestation of inward spiritual reality. Or as uh, Lincoln Duncan put it just a little bit prior, it's the aspect of seeing the Bible. We're seeing the outworking of the gospel in someone's life. Both were signs of the word. Uh, Baptism and Lord's Supper were both signs of the word, making visibly, uh, visibly prominent what had spiritually occurred. Baptism conveyed that one was now part of the body of Christ, whereby the Lord's Supper reflected that one was both in the believing community and a beneficiary of the spiritual blessings that entailed. So baptism goes, I'm a believer, I believe I'm part of the community of Christ. And the Lord's Supper, an ongoing testament to the fact that you are part of the body. Bavink notes that these sacraments were instituted for the believers and assured these believers of their portion 
in Christ. They do not precede the word, but follow it. They, do, they have not the power to grant a particular grace which cannot be gr- given by the word, nor be accepted by faith. All right, we move to that last, one of the last bits, and to prayer. The last element listed in Acts 2, 41-42, but still of significance, is regarding the local assembly's obligation to corporate prayer. Prayer was something that had been on numerous occasions exhorted by Christ to his disciples. He taught them, after all, how to pray through the Lord's Prayer. He demonstrated prayer, and his life was one of prayerful dependence upon the Father. Through prayer, Christ beckons his followers to put their trust and reliance upon God for their needs, both physical and spiritual. We are, Christ tells us, to ask the Father in his name for our needs. This is because we have, and you've probably heard it, uh, me say it many times, we're a needy people, we have many needs. We cannot do the work of God in our own lives. We are unable to conform uh, to Christ by our own ability. I'm sure any Christian would be able to recognize, I can't make uh, myself more like Christ by myself. I just can't. But we can, uh, as we cannot do, do that, we do not have the sovereign control over our own circumstances. We pray because we are and ought to be people who are desperate for God's will to be done in every way. That's why we ought to pray. Gary Miller, who's the principal of the Queensland Theological College, he helpfully notes that when we see our inability to do anything that makes any difference to ourselves or or our world, when we see past what is happening right now and today and tomorrow to what God has been doing in us and our world, to what he will do in us and our world, when we see how much we need God to change us by his spirit and to change other people by his spirit, we, when we see that, then we will start to pray and to keep praying. We pray as a sign of dependency, a demonstration that we can't change ourselves, but he can change us. However, prayer is not only a demonstration of obedience and dependency, to he, he who is Lord of the church, but it acts as yet another facilitator of God's work within us and within the gathering. When we come together in, to pray for God's glory to be made manifest, we are, in fact, praying that the medium that he has appointed to, to achieve this glory, this is the church, and will be, will be further equipped for the task he has appointed. So when we pray for this, when we pray for God's glory to be made manifest amongst us, we're praying that, again, for this church, which is his institution, to be further equipped for the charge and commission he's given us to do. Again, that sign of dependency, we're reliant on him because we know we can't glorify God by our own devices, by our own strength, by our own wisdom, any of that. For the gospel to be worked out in the world through evangelism, for the gospel to be worked out in the world through evangelism, and to be worked within the church for edification, prayer serves as a corporate cue, reminding all believers that they are and ought to be united together for this outcome, with such a commitment being worked out within their collective lives. All right, so that's to God. All right, when we move to the church. Whilst the common obligations of individual believers to the gathering has already been expressed, it is helpful to uh, restate the collective duty that the gathering has to itself. 
So we have a commitment to God. We have a duty to God. Right? But we also have a uh, commitment to, our, uh, to the church. Namely, and to say the same thing in three different ways for emphasis. For edification, for spiritual nurturing, and for discipleship. The gathering, uh, the gathering centered around the ministry of the word was to be the chief means in how God instructed, exhorted, and by the spirit applied the word through the, col- the collective commitment of believers. The church then was not only the mother of believers, but it was to be the spiritual school. Right? The spiritual school, I like that. Um, whilst, and I did not come up with that. I'm just, um, but whilst God could have made all believers instantly perfect... He instead, Calvin notes, desires them to grow into manhood or or womanhood solely under the education of the church. Yet such education is only possible when we actively recognize our calling by Christ to pursue communion in his body with a view towards others rather than ourselves. Again, to be a Christian is is to be selfless, is to esteem others more highly than ourselves. And that ought to be our mindset as we come into the church. We shouldn't be coming in to go, gimme, gimme, gimme. We will be taking, consuming, and be spiritually nourished. But it's also we come in in a selfless way, wanting also to build up others into our mutual love and knowledge of our Savior. This requires a true commitment of all believers in enacting and living the word out with one another, applying the different gifts in which they have been apportioned. It was by this that believers would grow in real spiritual maturity. In his body of practical divinity, this 18th century uh, Baptist theologian, John Gill, uh, who's a brilliant mind, uh, certainly a gift to the church, he unpacked several duties um, that he believed was incumbent on believers to do if they were to truly live the word together. Now, summarizing, he summarizes the one another's here into uh, 12 points, and he states that it's the duty of those within the church, so it's the duty of us all, to do, do the following 12 things. To love one another, which was the primary duty. To promote and preserve unity of affection within the gathering. To sympathize with each other in all circumstances to communicate to each other in such circumstances, to watch over one another so as to ensure that no one succumbs to sin, to bear with one another, displaying patience, forgiveness and understanding, to pray for one another, to separate ourselves from the practices of the world so as to not let sin or defilement enter, to be uh, be constant in assembling together, to not let any distraction, i.e. social standing, wealth, or spiritual gifting, divide. To strive together for the faith in both truth and doctrine. And lastly, to be examples to one another of the Christian life. Each duty here signifies the seriousness of the collective life that a believer has been called to. And each demonstrates the mutual obligation that all believers are called to perform when we gather for the church to truly function in the way that the church has been prescribed by God. However, flowing out from this, it requires a gathering to assemble regularly in order to carry out these duties. A church which only gathers once a month, a church which only gathers once a year, would be a poor forum for the carrying out of the application of God's word and the duties that we're being called to do to walk alongside one another. 
This is notably why the author of Hebrews reminded his readers to keep meeting. Why? For the act of mutual encouragement and Christ-like conformity. When he states in chapter 20, verse 24 of 25, And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Indeed, the uh, the regularity of meeting was understood as being crucial for Christians to achieve spiritual maturity, particularly in a world which, as we know, seeks to distract and seduce. Now, in many respects, um, as we move now from the two, two of the three duties that the church have been entrusted uh, to God and to the church, now we look to the world. And in many respects, Jesus is the greatest missionary. Having been sent forth by the Father into the world to gather his people, Christ now instructs the very same people that he has gathered to go and do likewise. He invites and extends his own mission that which is firmly uh, grounded in his life, death, and resurrection to those who belong to him so that they can become fellow workers who are planters of seeds, harvesters of fields, and fishers of men. Whilst this was limited to the nation of Israel during his life, it was always the intention that this mission, primarily to gather his people, would be international. Those who served as a foundation of the church, the apostles, were charged to be witnesses to everything that Jesus had done in all and said in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This, however, was not a mandate, which was, and as some have said, and I think maybe even Todd mentioned it this morning, this was not a mandate not given to them as individuals, but as representatives. The Great Commission was given as a, as a, a mandate as, uh, to them as representatives of the church at that time, because who were the church at that point in time when it was given, it was the apostles. It was the, the initial disciples. Indeed, it was the later sending of Paul and Barnabas by the church of Antioch in Acts 13 that truly commenced this ends of the earth dimension of the mission, and that is to the Gentiles. So again, Jesus is a great missionary. He's been sent by the Father to gather his people, to call his people. And what does he do? He invites us to be partakers of, of this task, of this duty, right, of which he himself started. From the charge given to the body of Christ through the representation of the apostles, it is apparent that all believers are called to bear witness to the actions of Christ. All Christians are called to bear witness to the actions of Christ, specifically the good news of what he achieved. The church universally is to serve as the custodian of this proclamation. We have, as a church, as an institution ordained by God, our message to go out to the world with. The proclamation, this proclamation of repentance for forgiveness of sins in Luke 24 is not optional for the local assembly. Each is called to act as an embassy of the kingdom of God in and to the communities in which they physically belong. We can't neglect that. That is a duty that we have been entrusted with. Each is called to be a city on the hill to the world, yet such is only possible by the actual conveyance of a salvific message to which they have been entrusted. It is no more possible to preach the gospel without words than it is to feed the hungry without food. 
We can't preach the gospel simply by our actions without words. Right? Just like you can't just feed the hungry people by, uh, by not giving them food. You, they need food. This is not to de- uh, denigrate, uh, denigrate the nece- uh, necessity of supportive actions of mercy. Right? I'm not saying, therefore, we only preach, we only talk about the good news and there's no actual accompanying actions that we do. Rather, the word is meant to be applied and such application should mean that the Christian's life is one that acts for the common good. We are called to be a force for the common good in the society in which God has placed us. Likewise, and through this, the love of Christ is made known and the transformative effects of the gospel verified when we do such things. However, the church, given this mission, is called to act as a mouthpiece of God's message of mercy to the world. And when it speaks, it is carried with a full uh, authority of Christ. That said, we need to be wary of attempts to compact this mission to being only about evangelism. This is the flip side. Or minimalize the message we preach to only a handful of key texts. The gospel is more than a proclamation of sin, repentance and forgiveness in Christ, but it is certainly not anything less. It involves a proclamation in addition to the ongoing captivation and submission of the hearer to its contents the truth of the gospel is deeply eschatological, bearing, uh, bearing that the believer from the start to the finish of the race. We just don't only need it from the onset of our Christian walk, right? We need to keep hearing the, applic- uh, keep hearing the words of the gospel ongoing in our, Christ- in our Christian walk. The good news of Christ must be preached, but it does not exist in a vacuum. Rather, it is fully dependent upon the rest of the word which applies, supports, extends, and furthers its reality. Again, when you think about it, the the church itself, when you think about the proclamation of the gospel, we go out there, we evangelize, we tell them about the good news of Christ, that he has died to reconcile us to the Father, and all we need to do is place faith in him, and we will be reconciled. Yes, that is absolutely uh, essential, but beyond that, the church itself is a support structure in how this good news goes out. And so, the rest, of the, to- uh, the rest of the exhortation within Scripture talks about how, for example, you may be looking at uh, going, okay, you've got the gospel, the good news, but now we've got these ideas of um, the requirements of a deacon. How does that fit within the proclamation of the gospel? Because it helps with the support structure of how the gospel goes out through the church. The mission of the church as defined by the Great Commission is to build out and build up. I always love that. Building out, building up. That's what the, the charge of the, and the mission of the church is, and as defined by the Great Commission. We go out teaching about Christ and, build and, teaching, uh, and building them up in Christ. Um, and it is a continued act of building up which facilitates the ability of building out. Uh, the quote to New Testament scholars, Andreas Kostenberger and Peter O'Brien, if the apostolic model is to be followed by missionaries in a contemporary scene, then the initial proclamation of the gospel and the winning of converts does not conc- conclude the missionary task. Forming believers into mature Christian congregations, providing theological and pastoral counsel against dangers arising from the inside and outside churches, strengthening believers both individually and corporately as they face suffering and persecution so that they will stand fast in the Lord, 
all fall within the scope of what is involved in continuing the mission of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's absolutely correct. Indeed, it is with this understanding that Paul would claim to the Ephesians prior to leaving them that having taught them the entire counsel of God, that he was innocent of the blood of all. It was an acknowledgement that his duties amongst them was now complete. Having taught them not only about the good news that which uh, was needed to continue, but that which was needed to continue the propagation of the mission of the church. He's taught them everything, including how the church is to run and other things to help with the church's mission. Gospel proclamation led to conversion to Christ, but it also meant incorporation into a local gathering. And it was to be in such assemblies that a a culture of missional fulfillment was to be cultivated. Paul recognised that it is evident uh, through his epistles that the role and structure of the church was absolutely vital in the continuation of the gospel spread. The mission could not be sufficiently continued through sole gospel proclamation, but because it required believers to proclaim it, it required and depended upon the local assembly to faithfully function in building up all believers to be such witnesses and send out specially gifted individuals as gifted dedicated missionaries. Now, as some of you may be aware, it was the particular Baptist, and particularly under William Carey, and, uh, and as well as others during his time period, uh, Andrew Fuller was another involved in, in that missionary movement who helped start, uh, kickstart what is often called the, the modern missionary movement, as William Carey went out to India. That, that was the kickstart of the modern missionary movement as we know today, and that started from a particular Baptist understanding of the role of the church in the advancement of God's kingdom across the earth. Particularly vital as we now are talking about going global with the gospel at Mission Month. But to wrap up and to conclude uh, tonight's um, uh, saying, and I, this is probably the longest lecture I've given to date, so apologies for that. But to... to briefly conclude at this point that the life that Christians are called to live is communal. I hope if you take away any uh, thing tonight, it's to understand exactly that. And as Ian Murray puts it so succinctly, an independent Christian is a contradiction. I think we'd all, hopefully all would agree to that. Called to Christ, it is an anomaly to believe that we, in, uh, that we are also free not to gather with his body. That as I become a follower of Christ, I don't need to be part of the local body at all. Indeed, in our postmodern, hyper-individualistic uh, society, the, the next sentiment may be considered completely alien uh, to our mind, when, uh, which is public worship of God ought to be preferred before private. That might sound awfully controversial. Benjamin Keach, who I mentioned earlier, in making this assertion calls our attention to the nature of the Christian walk and the nourishment that we only receive through being in, in the institution that God ordains, that is, within the assembly. Yes, we ought to be doing um, many things um, we can and ought to be doing uh, many things privately, private prayer, private Bible reading, all these type of things, but none replaces the physical refinement that is undertaken when we come here together. Participating in the public ordinances, such as public prayer, hearing and applying the word together and singing God's praises, 
Likewise, in walking in this world, which is no friend to those who are in Christ, and let us all remember that, we would do well to remember that whilst one person may and will struggle, two individuals walking together are better than one. For if Eva fails, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who fails, uh, who fails without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if one, and someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Now, this is a particular passage from Ecclesiastes, uh, but it's an important one, which I hope you can, you can appreciate the sentiment here. It's only by gathering together that we are able to, to be strengthened to this extent. This is why Keach desires to call his readers to show a high value and estimation for the public worship of God. It is a place where all those who desire to seriously follow Christ, this is where we ought to be. Not only here on here on Sunday, but doing life together. Because it's through doing life together that we are able to be built up and equipped for what we've been called to do and be. Keach concludes his treatise on the church, the glory of a true church, by exhorting his readers the following. Oh, neglect not your prayer, reading and meditation, and take care also to educate and catechize your children. Live as men and women that are dead to this world. Walk for the Lord's sake as adorns the gospel. See the zeal and knowledge go together. A good conversation and good doctrine go together. These two uh, together are better than one. Brethren, he who makes the word of God, he's ruined whatever, soever he does. And the glory of God, his end in what he does, shall have the spirit of God to be his strength. This is Solomon's threefold cord that will be one, or it will be three. cannot be two, nor can be broken. May this be our reminder as well. We accord here to collectively worship and intentionally worship together. Because we recognize it is only here where we can be built up into the fullness and maturity of Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Blessed Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you have not just saved us to a vacuum, but you've saved us not only to yourself, but to your body, to the body of Christ, to your people. Father, we recognize that we are not made for isolation. Father, it's to our spiritual detriment when we prefer isolation over the gathering. Help us to be those who are intentional, just like our particular Baptist forefathers in recognizing the centrality of gathering underneath your word. Recognizing the importance of your word in that it builds us up for all things but that it's meant to be applied collectively. We are refined as iron sharpens iron. So, Father, we just pray that we will be those who understand the role of the church. We will be those who, as Keach exhorts here, who will appreciate and value and esteem the local church because we recognize that this institution that is, has been ordained by you is for our betterment, our spiritual nourishment, and it is where we are schooled in what we need to learn and how we are to grow. So, Father, we just thank you 
for the fact that you have given us this institution. Let us treasure it and value it. In your son's most blessed name, amen.